Hi, and welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. We have got our 58th show, and we've got a special guest for us today, Emmanuel Daniel. How are you, Emmanuel? Great to see you, Alistair, and uh, you know, can't wait to get into our conversation. Yeah, we were just speaking a little bit offline about everything. We should have kept it on the show, guys. It was getting good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Emmanuel, just give a bit of background about yourself. You know, you know you've just recently um, published a book, and... Um, uh, let our viewers know all about you. Well, um, you know, the first question you asked me off offline just now was, uh, you know, where am I now? I'm actually in New York, and uh, I, uh, you know, divide my time between New York, uh, Singapore, which is where I'm originally from, uh, and and Beijing, where I have a pretty good business going uh, with the banking system in in China. Uh, I'm the founder of something called the Asian Banker. I founded it in 1996. I started it as a publication, but today uh, it's not a publication, it's a platform. Uh, we, we sell lots of research, uh, we help banks benchmark their operations and stuff. Uh, and we are active in just about every uh, developed Asian country and now in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, so it's been an incredible journey, um, you know, being able to get off a plane in any country uh, and, and know the chairman or the CEOs of the major banks in just about every developed, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, more developed Asian countries, uh, and and then also, of course, in the U.S. Because uh, um, as you'll see, that you know, my the the person who wrote my books uh, forward, the two people, uh, you know, Barney Frank, uh, who wrote the Dot Frank Act, um, and Richard Sandor, uh, you know, a leader in the market space, uh, creator of the uh, derivatives exchange. Um, so um, how I came on to the U.S. was basically uh, American bankers, uh, you know, with interest in outside of the U.S. Uh, and I was like the linchpin uh, sort of making uh, relationships happen, um, you know, and over 26, seven year period, uh, I've been able to uh, understand a lot about how commercial banks work. Uh, and then this whole decentralized finance universe started creeping in on me. Uh, and I wanted to capture all of that in a book. And so I wrote this book, uh, The Great Transition, um, you know, the personalization of finances here. Uh, and the interesting thing about writing this book was that uh, the first person it had to change was me uh, because I understood uh, all the, the, the DNA of uh, commercial banking, traditional banking. Um, and I wanted to see how much of that was going to get carried into um, you know, crypto, uh, cryptos and uh, decentralized finance in, in, in general. Um, and I think I understand the concerns of traditional bankers uh, and traditional finance people who uh, look at all the developments taking place in the crypto world, in, in uh, uh, decentralized world and, and thinking that, you know, how much of that is real. Uh, I say today, because I meet them, I talk with them, uh, I attend their meetings, I see the applications that they develop. Um, and I say that the network world is uh, definitely on its way uh, and that, that the transition is what we're dealing with right at the moment. And that's why the title of the book, The Great Transition. Um, but I also then um, make some very important assertions. Um, and I was actually a little bit uh, concerned that uh, you know that I had to I had to speak louder than everybody else to get heard on this, and that is that I'm saying that uh, the in technology terms um, we are we are now uh, transitioning from the platform era to personalization. 
so the days of the platform era are over. And I'm saying this at a time when the platform era is, is actually at the height of it, uh, meaning that you know the, the social media platforms, the trading platforms, uh, anyone who wants to start a digital bank thinks of things in platform terms. Uh, and I'm saying that um, the user is gaining a lot more uh, control over his data, his assets, uh, and who he wants to interact with. Um, and anyone who thinks platforms as a way of onboarding uh, as many users as possible uh, and then monetizing them has to start thinking differently today. Um, you know, and then I give examples in there about you know, how the uh, original platform players didn't make the transition from desktop to mobile, and then now it's from mobile to you know, device independence, internet of things and stuff like that. Um, so, so I'm talking a little bit about technology, but I, at the, I, I'm looking at it uh, in in a way in the way that uh, technology affects the future of finance, uh, you know, in that way. Um, and in writing this book, um, uh, I also came to terms with the fact that the world in which we are living in is changing. You know, and one of the reasons I'm spending a lot more time in the U.S. Uh, is that with personalization. Um, you find that society itself is uh, increasingly difficult to govern, you know. So I go into a little bit of that, uh, and because I was, I took a holistic approach in the way I wrote my book. Uh, you know, I answered questions like, uh, "Will the dollar be uh, the dominant currency going forward?" Um, and for all of these questions, um, I go back to first principles. You know, uh, what was it that created? Uh, the financial system that we know today, uh, and then and then use those first principles to uh, extrapolate and say, you know, what what the future will look like, and you know who the dominant players will will look like going forward. Yeah, that's super interesting. We, we've actually been. I'll bring it up just now. Central bank digital currencies. So, you know, I, I've been studying this over the last three weeks. Actually, it was a bit more in terms of. Um, because the you know the Fed put out the white paper for the digital dollar, so you know, and that wasn't even that long ago, but it was just reading about digital yen and what's happening with China, and essentially I've been reading, you know, I, I follow like Coin Telegraph and CoinDesk and these sort of um, publications, but they're talking about you know the Chinese using their central bank digital currency as a mechanism to bypass the U.S. dollar as the most premium currency in the world. Is this just sort of hogwash or what are your thoughts on it all and how is that going to all play out? Because, you know, that's a, a major concern, especially to Americans, because fiat currency is obviously the number one reserve currency in the world right now. Well, there are two questions in what you've just asked. One is the future of uh, central bank digital currencies. And the other is uh, the reserve currency question, which is uh, which currency will you know, eventually be the dominant reserve currency of the world? I don't even think that that second question is... Uh, um, it, it's a valid question to ask because uh, the nature of reserve currencies, I'll come to that in a second. Um, but in terms of central bank digital currencies, um, I've now visited uh, the live central bank digital currency sites like in the Bahamas. Um, you know, I've, I've been to uh, El Salvador and had a look at their crypto initiative and, and, and stuff, and I'll be going to St. Kitts um, and Uruguay. You know, it's funny because Uruguay... Uh, experimented with central bank digital currencies, one of the first to experiment. They called it a success and then they went quiet after that. And this was like in 2014 or something. Um, and I was looking for white papers that uh, talked about what Uruguay actually learned. Uh, and there's nothing available. So I'll be going there next month to uh, to have a conversation with, with uh, regulators there. 
Now, what's interesting is that, uh, let me just cut to the chase. And I say that uh, central bank digital currencies um, we are destined to fail. And I'm probably the only person saying this at the moment with, um, with clarity um, because uh, of a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason is actually not even uh, the, the intent of the central bank, uh, central banks around the world. Uh, it's the fact that um, CBDCs will find it very difficult to keep up with the technology advances being made in crypto, uh, in stable coins, and and so on. Um, you know, and the whole token industry um, and the applications being created around them. Um, you know, in fact, if you look at um, all the so-called pilots that are taking place in France, in Canada, in Singapore, uh, you know, and then every initiative that they announce uh, is always trying to keep up with the development that's already taken place in the crypto space. Um, you know, and if you look at any one crypto, you know, take Solana, you know, uh, or, or one of these, uh, you know, just name anyone, um, you know, they have like, you know, 300,000 um, uh, you know, application developers working around them. Uh, and the amount of capital that they're able to raise, um, you know, uh, is, uh, is astounding. And no central bank is putting in uh, that amount of capital uh, to, uh, to create the technology required to, uh, to make the, the central bank digital currencies um, robust. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason is really that, um, you know, they, the, they have, the, the idea of the central bank digital currencies, they've actually created a payment system that now stands parallel to their traditional banking system. And if you look at all the literature, um, it is all about central banks trying to justify why they need to uh, run the central bank digital currencies uh, through their traditional banking system anyway, so that they don't lose the, the fiat effect of, uh, you know, of being able to leverage the economy and, and create debt and so on. Um, you know, and then there are other reasons. Um, um, you know, like in, in um, uh, I went to, uh, uh, to, to, to one of the islands nearby, uh, you know, and um, and I and I looked at I asked the central bank governor. I said, uh, you know, you, you're one of the first countries in the world uh, to uh, to issue a central bank digital currency. How's it going? He said, uh, less than one percent uptake. Uh, that's because the banks just won't allow us uh, to make the transition into CBDCs. You know, uh, and 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 so on. So I I think that the effort required to make the transition. Uh, uh, many central banks are not, um, you know, taking into account what's involved in terms of marketing, in terms of regulation, uh, and the battle sometimes is at the point of sale. Uh, that is that, you know, and even now with the transition from cash to digital, uh, not many countries are making that, that transition very well uh, at the point of sale uh, where the, you know, merchants require you to pay, you know, what do you want uh, to be able to pay with, um, you know. So until we see some of these uh, practical questions being answered, uh, I don't see CBDCs, um, uh, you know, taking off um, in a real way. Uh, and then on top of that, you have this uh, big issue of, uh, um, you know, trust in govern government. Um, you know, countries like Canada, after the truckers' riots, um, you know, a couple of years ago, now uh, that you know, it it um, nobody in the country trusts the regulator to issue a currency where they can switch off the tap on you, um, you know, at will. Um, you know, so the fact that the U.S. is also thinking about it um, makes me think that the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, uh, hasn't taken into consideration public opinion yet, um, you know. And once they do that, 
Uh, and once you see the debates in Congress, uh, you'll start seeing a very different picture that, you know, in terms of what will um, emerge. Now, um, what seems to be happening is that uh, stable coins uh, appear to be a more viable option uh, than central bank digital currencies um, uh, because they, especially when they're regulated, uh, they enable any bank to issue their own stable coins, uh, populate it, um, you know, disseminated. Uh, there's a greater ownership uh, at the operational level uh, of the banking system. Okay, and so now then we come to the question of reserve currency. Um, so in, in my book, I actually discussed this by going back to what actually happened that made the dollar a reserve currency. Um, you know, after the after World War II, when after the Marshall Plan was you know full underway, uh, the dollar was floating a lot outside uh, of the U.S. The U.S. was finding it difficult to keep uh, the tag uh, tag to uh, the price of gold uh, and all that, right? And um, um, and all of the other countries in the world found that the dollar was a cheaper source of funding. Uh, it was far more liquid, um, and you know many countries around the world were trying to build uh, a trading capability, and the dollar offered itself uh, as the currency of convenience that that you know was uh, liquid enough. Uh, and then the then the U.S. Um, had laws put in place that. Um, you know, uh, this, this allowed the dollar from coming back into the current into the country, and so today, seventy percent of the dollar in circulation circulates outside the U.S. Right, so um, it was never an intention of any legislator in the U.S. to make the U.S. currency the de facto, um, um, you know, global currency in that way, uh, and uh, because so much of it floats outside the U.S., uh, no one trader is able to short the dollar or affect the dollar. I mean, it's just created that amount of uh, um, liquidity, um, you know, outside outside of the U.S. Um, so what I'm actually suggesting is that currencies become global, not through the intention of regulators. Uh, they become global because of uh, a series of unintended consequences. Um, and any country that wants to take over that uh, functionality uh, needs to ask itself, does it care enough about its own currency uh, or is it controlling its uh, own currency too much uh, that, that, um, you know, that it will not allow it to be uh, traded globally? So when we look at um, the uh, renminbi, for example, um, you know, there's no current capital account convertibility outside of, the, outside of China. In fact, the renminbi costs cheaper outside of China than in China because rates are kept higher in China to support the banking system. Uh, and, and, and the Chinese regulators themselves will not allow uh, their own uh, businesses to bring renminbi back into the country. Um, you know, and on top of that, um, you know, the uh, renminbi floating outside the current country, uh, there's not enough uh, liquidity. So when we think about the Belt and Road program, for example, just about every uh, Chinese um, contractor outside of China uh, wants to be paid in dollars. And I've had central bank regulators, uh, governors sitting in front of me telling me that, you know, China gave us $30 billion in swap agreement. We don't need, we can't use it because all the contract Chinese contractors want to be paid in dollars. So until we start seeing a transition where a country doesn't care uh, about how much of its own currency floats outside the country, then we start seeing uh, you know, a, a shift, a dynamics in the in the shift of uh, of the the role of the different currencies around the world. Um, you know, and on top of that, anyone who holds 
a dollar asset, say a treasury bill, technically the US is working for that investor, right? So any foreign uh, central bank holding US treasury bills, uh, it's the US working to provide the uh, the, the return on those bills. Um, and, um, you know, so for me, I, I'm just thinking, why would any country, except for reasons of prestige, uh, want to have that uh, responsibility? Uh, you know, there are, there are countries with very good bonds being issued. China is one of them. The EU is another, uh, you know, to, to, um, to, to, you know, to spread out its risk and, uh, uh, you know, and get um, foreign investors in it, into its capital markets. Uh, you know, and uh, to the extent that they support the capital markets, that's good. But to the extent that uh, it becomes a burden that a uh, country has to bear, um, I think that that's something that no other country in the world would want to take it on. So I've, I've actually seen perspectives which are, you know, separate, different from all the arguments or all the, um, you know, discussions that you probably see on reserve currencies today, uh, which tend to focus on, you know, the, the petrodollar and stuff like that. Uh, there, there are some actions like right now, you know, the, the BRICS countries are talking to each other, saying that, you know what, uh, can we start, you know, dealing with each other in a currency other than the dollar? Uh, and then they look at each other and say, whose currency, uh, you know, and how much uh, and who can provide the liquidity, who will take the responsibility for it. So that kind of thing. Um, the world will evolve uh, and respond to different challenges. Uh, over time, like right now, is the Russian-Ukraine crisis and so on, but um, but there are some underlining themes that uh, that that play out uh, quietly. Uh, so that's what my book focuses on: the underlining themes, and that's what I think a lot about. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting because you think of most stable coins; they're all benchmarked against the dollar anyway. So yeah, definitely all stable coins I can think of, or anyone going to do a stable coin, they're going to want to benchmark it against the dollar. Uh, well, there'll be the dollar benchmark ones, but today there are euro benchmark ones, there are Singapore dollar benchmark ones. Uh, you know, any country can can have its private sector uh, players, including banks, issue stable coins. Um, you know, then the question is, when they say they've issued stable coins, uh, is there enough regulation to make sure that when they say it's benchmark, uh, that they have the reserves to pay out if there's a, it's a run on a stable coin? Uh, and the world is uh, discovering that whole process right now. Uh, you know, because I think that, that there were different approaches in, in benchmarking stable coins. One is to actually have the reserves uh, in the form of treasury bills or in the form of corporate debt or in the form of cash, um, you know, so all in the form of algorithms. And that one got thrown out the window uh, with the lunar with, with the lunar crisis. So uh, with a lunar fallout. Right. So so the thing is that um, the, uh, the, the private sector, the you know, and, and this is um, this is an interesting battle that people don't see today. Um, you know, it was Barney Frank. Uh, I was having dinner with him one evening, and he said, "You know, the only people who's who's having a conversation that uh, the, the the government is the problem uh, are Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in an under afterlife conversation." You know, and I, I laughed. You know, when I when I heard him say that uh, because. Uh, what we what we are seeing is the forces of the state, um, you know, um, pushing against uh, uh, you know the free economy, the the forces of private enterprise, um, and and both have an important role to play today, uh, especially when we see after COVID, um, you know, the state has to build infrastructure and and uh, you know care, you know, social uh, safety safety net and so on, uh, and then you have the private enterprise 
which is the best arbiter of of uh, of information and and capital. Um, you know, it, it allocates capital in the most efficient manner, and it's brutal. Um, you know, so I think that's the battlefield that we're seeing uh, in. Uh, the the new world that is being shaped through capital and and through innovations in finance and so on. Yeah, I'll I'll just bring that up there. But let's speak about the Luna stablecoin because obviously, and we'll speak about Binance and FTX in a minute as well, just to get your thoughts on both of that, Emmanuel. But but just for our viewers to understand, can you explain how the Luna stablecoin end up having a run of it and sort of collapsing? because no one thought that was going to happen until it happened with Luna. Well, both Luna and, you know, and, um, and, you know, this week with, uh, or rather last two weeks with uh, uh, FTX, FTX, uh, FTT, sorry, um, you know, is that it's uh, bad actors, um, you know. Now, so go back to first principles. Uh, Cryptos are not difficult to, uh, to create. Okay, uh, they're not like building a bridge across a river. It's it, it requires far fewer engineers. Uh, it's kits, and in the case of FTX, um, you know uh, the the players were all kids. They were less than thirty years old, and they've never run a company before. They did not have a board of directors. Um, you know, uh, it it was uh, friends of friends. Uh, you know, uh, playing uh, playing kitchen. Uh, literally, I mean, if you if you if you went into the the essence of um, um, you know Sam uh, Bankman Fried SPF uh, and his and his friends running um, you know FTX and Alameda uh, uh, you know Capital, um, and the thing is that um, um, these are early days, and I think that what's happening, and actually it goes back to my book, which is we are in a journey towards the transitioning uh, towards the personalization of finance so when we discuss these um you know crypto fallouts uh the first thing we need to start by coming to terms with is anyone can issue a crypto you can i can anyone watching this can you just google it's probably six or seven steps um you know and and you can issue a crypto of your own and that's the the beauty of the crypto industry is that um every one of us can build our own crypto, uh, which means that then we have to figure out why we created a crypto, what what is the value that we want to put into the crypto, and whether others will accept the crypto that we created. So this is the universe that's being created, and it's just that the early players are discovering that the markets will reward them incredibly uh, for the cryptos that they've created because of whatever reason the market wants to give itself um you know so in the case of ftx there's some utilities around it uh in the in the case of um you know luna um you know it can be switched to it other cryptos uh, in order to um you know trade in the in de- decentralized finance um you know and these are actually quite lame excuses by the way because the technologies for the network world are just coming into shape um you know and the utilities that they create uh, just one you know, one point different from the other crypto, their competitors, and so on. Uh, the fact that markets were willing to give them $8 billion, uh, you know, and, and so on, and, and then they leveraged it up to like $40 billion, um, they're playing with numbers that they've, they've never seen in their lifetime, uh, you know, and the, then we have to ask ourselves, what in the world 
uh, is the venture capital universe looking at? What is what is their uh, raison d'etre? What is their reason for existence? What is their um, you know what is their methodology in terms of valuing uh, what's being created today? In fact, uh, the platform era uh, was a more stable universe where uh, a venture capital will say your ability to onboard uh, as many users as possible is the criteria by which we will value you. And then now for crypto, uh, it's whoever becomes popular. That is, um, you know, they have many buyers for their crypto, uh, many users for their crypto and so on. Uh, but that's so fleeting uh, that it's very difficult to put a valuation on it. Uh, the more cryptos that are being created, the more stable uh, that, that universe becomes. Uh, you know, because then uh, you'll find capital being allocated much more across the board uh, and uh, and it will be closer to the utility of the capital. Uh, and I think that that we are working ourselves, you know, towards that. In fact, the fallout from uh, from FTX and and uh, and and Luna uh, is good because, um, you know, the valuations go down uh, and then uh, the, the the capital gets spread out uh, to any number of cryptos out there. Because the journey that we are on uh, is the networked world where cryptos are created for utility, for functions. Uh, you know, and in that world, there's no reason why a crypto should be uh, overvalued, that, that it should have a functional value uh, that's commensurate with the activity that it's supporting. Uh, you know, so and I think we're getting there. We, we will get there eventually. So these fallouts are all very good, uh, except that it's not going to reward anyone in the process. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's super interesting. So, so how does it? Um, we'll bring in the next sort of topic. Moving on from there is like sort of financial inclusion. So, you know, you're speaking about this at sort of a high end from a banking perspective, but for people sitting at home, you know, how do you see this new digital world, including them financially? Are they going to be excluded, or how is it going to work for your average Joe, as they say in America, not Joe Biden, obviously. You know, the first rule about financial inclusion is nobody in the world wants to be financially included. Nobody wants to have a mortgage. People want to have a house. Nobody wants to have an automobile loan. They want to have a car, a, you know, a, you know, a spanky car. So uh, the, the, the aspiration of every person, rich or poor, uh, is to be digitally included, not financially included. Uh, and when the World Bank uh, puts out a... A report saying that you know, well, 20% of the world is not uh, financially included. Uh, they what they mean is they, they, that 20% of the, and they use the that they come up with a number by saying that 20% of the world does not have bank accounts. Who needs a bank account today? Um, you know, I want access, digital access to the things I want to do. And uh, today you have um, you know digital wallets, for example, uh, that takes away the need to have bank accounts. You know, bank accounts are actually cruel, uh, especially for poor, poor people because uh, they don't pay a good interest rate. Uh, you know, you're just leaving it in there. It's hard to take out that money unless you walk out to an ATM and so on. But if you if you are in a digital um, wallet ecosystem, uh, you can do just about everything in your life, um, the life's daily needs out of a digital wallet. So you know banks need to think that way, and then of course they need to think that uh, crypto, that a stable coin can be a digital wallet too. You know, so we're getting that way, right? So the question that the people who are trying to uh, use the financial inclusion excuse uh, 
the question they're asking is different from the answer that's being developed right now. The reality that's becoming, um, you know, that's becoming true uh, in the world that we live in. Uh, and on top of that, uh, when you think about uh, fintechs or financial technology companies uh, using the financial inclusion as an excuse for their, the reason of their existence, what are they saying? They're saying that we want to onboard as many poor people as possible onto our platforms uh, and then monetize them. Right. So and why? Because that's what the venture capital um, capitalist is asking you to do. Uh, and there they're using the platform analogy, the, the platform model uh, that existed in the 1990s into the 2000s. And that model is starting to disintegrate, uh, you know, according to my thinking and, and according to my book. Um, you know, so so I think that financial. So that's why I'm willing to say that um, the, the excuse that fi financial inclusion is a lie. Uh, it's created by venture capitalists to 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 support the the platform idea of the economy. Uh, what we really need to move into uh, is um, you know not financial inclusion but uh, digital inclusion uh, for all in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good perspective on how it actually works for people out there because it's because essentially after COVID, you know, I've been explaining the world's going like that splitting further and further those who have and those who have not and a lot to do with the like asset ownership so how is this digital inclusion going to help people who are on this side of the line who don't own assets and our parents don't own assets so they're not going to inherit any sort of house or property from that as well how do you think they're going to it's going to the world's going to be affected to them with what's happening emmanuel you know, the one of the cruel things that regulators or central banks and regulators are doing is to is to prohibit uh, the the poor people in their society uh, from participating in in the digital economy, uh, and they prohibit prohibit them by you know simple things like um, not giving them easy access to cryptocurrencies, for example. Um, you know, and and when they do that, they are making a judgment call that. Um, that poor people are not entitled uh, to make an educated guess uh, as to where wealth is going to be created in the future. Um, you know, and I think that uh, that's the wrong approach. Uh, in fact, the, the people you need to exclude or, um, you know, or control their, their, their um, access to alternative capital or alternative investments uh, are the middle class. Uh, you know, in fact, like I saw a piece of research that said from January to September this year, nearly $2 trillion uh, was, was wiped up from 401k accounts uh, in the US, right? So, um, you know, and that is much more troubling uh, than not allowing people who don't have money anyway from, you know, trying to dabble with uh, digital assets uh, and the things that they, they, they want to learn from. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting stories was a poor kid in India, um, you know, had been collecting uh, uh, Bitcoin for, you know, about 10 years or so. And he became uh, the biggest buyer of uh, of. Uh, um, of an NFT, uh, $64 million from Beeple, right? Um, and, uh, and he still believes only in cryptocurrencies. He doesn't own a house and stuff like that. Um, and people who don't have assets uh, can make those judgment calls because they don't have uh, liabilities either. They're not, they don't have something hanging around on, on their back. Um, so the first thing I'll say there is that uh, central banks or regulators should stop trying to guess 
what assets are dangerous and what are not, uh, what assets are not. Uh, you know, and the second thing there uh, is that um, giving uh, digital access to all all manner of assets, including NFTs, uh, is now actually almost a human right. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's putting everybody on the on the same starting line. Um, you know, then how these assets will perform uh, is an interesting journey that that uh, that is already taking shape. Um, and where it's le- leading to is very interesting. And I say this in the last chapter of my book, uh, which is that uh, we are transforming from, from an asset-heavy uh, eco- economy to an asset-light economy, where through sharing and through networking, um, you know, that, that, uh, that many of us, many of the next generation, you know, the Gen Z and, and beyond, uh, are not as interested in owning an asset uh, as they are in utilizing an asset and sharing an asset. Uh, and we are moving into that dimension. And it's something that those of us who are baby boomers will never understand. Um, you know, and, and already we are seeing this on the balance sheets of large corporations. Uh, you know, they're becoming asset light. They, uh, you know, they're offloading buildings. They're offloading, um, you know, uh, anything that's a form of asset and, and uh, focusing on their core business uh, and uh, having a huge trading book instead. Um, you know, any of the large corporations which, have, which are cash uh, uh, heavy, uh, today they have a, a trading book which is as large as their actual core business. So, so we are actually moving into an asset-like uh, universe without realizing it. Uh, and it's just that in order to function in that universe, you need to be digitally uh, accessible. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That makes that makes sense there as well. Let me bring it. Normally, we bring in like a couple of additional articles that are out there that are topical during the week. So you know, I'll bring this one in that I was reading earlier because I was obviously wanting to speak about the stable coins. But this is J.P. Morgan. I don't know if you can see that, Emmanuel. They're saying the sh- uh, the shrinking stable coin market is another sign of investors' exodus from crypto. So people are now talking about this crypto winter coming in, and this is basically getting this article has been driven on CoinDesk to do with the markets. So, so where do you see this happening? You know, this is a, from J.P. Morgan, and obviously, they, you know, they had their they were one of the early adopters of crypto from a, a major bank. You know, so so where do you see this happening, and do you see a bit of crypto winter coming, or what, what do you think? Um, going to be happening with this um you know again in my book i i actually outline uh the phases in which um you know civilization evolves uh from one phase to the next um and and i actually borrowed that idea from someone i totally respect um who said that you know society moves from uh from its tribal to its institutional to its markets and then to its network phases uh when you see a comment like this uh, you need to ask uh, which dimension are they, um, you know, are they thinking on? So if you look at the value of crypto today and treat it as a securities asset, um, you fall into the markets dimension uh, strictly. So everything that, you know, Charlie Munger uh, and and you know and all these old-time really strong uh, equities investors say are true. Are correct. You have to buy that in, okay. Um, and um, and and uh, the rules of the market applies. Uh, 
Um, so everything that's happening in the crypto winter is a function of the market. Uh, and it's uh, it's the same winter that's affecting equities winter. It's the same winter that's affecting the bonds market winter, uh, you know, and, and gold markets and everything else. So it's an investment, um, uh, you know, universe. Um, but there is an, the next dimension, which is the network universe, uh, which is still being created. Uh, there, the, it's the utility of these digital assets that we need to look at. Uh, we need to look at open source computing. We need to look at uh, APIs uh, on the blockchain. Uh, we need to look at network of networks. Uh, that's where the value of all of these technologies being created will become a reality and become a daily reality in our, in our lives. Um, you know, and it will it will dictate entire economies. Um, you know, and and the the dimension that these network utilities are creating uh, will create um, a GDP effect uh, that's already being absorbed into how GDP is being calculated in countries like the U.S. right now. You know, so it's not inconceivable that the GDP of the U.S. can go from twenty billion, which is where it is about right now. To 40 billion, uh, just um, you know, absorbing all of the uh, value being created in the network effect, uh, and that that universe is not uh, here yet, uh, you know, and so we, and it's nothing to do with the crypto winter that we see today, you know. So um, so we need to pay attention to where we are and what it is that we are that we're discussing, uh, and then and then um, you know adhere to the truisms that that are that operate in that ecosystem. So. Crypto as a as a as an asset uh, as a security, it falls into the same rules as any other security. Crypto as a um, as a token for uh, the network effect, that's a totally different universe that is still being created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a good perspective to, to explain it like that. And I'll just but we were speaking about Binance and FTX and earlier. JP Morgan plays both both sides quite well, by the way. <laughs> is issuing its own coins, is working with companies like Pator, uh, you know, building the network effect, uh, while, while saying that, uh, you know, and it's probably, in my view, probably going to be one of the first banks to issue its own stable coin uh, when when they get the rules in place, okay, while it's, report, while it's issuing reports like this. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're the ones leading the field anyway in terms of all the white papers and technology. But coming back to Binance and uh, FTX, so this is Binance's uh, CEO basically saying, we were the last straw that broke the camel's back. And obviously now he's coming out and having to make multiple statements. But can you explain to people how Binance was involved in FTX and why Binance is going to be secure going forward when someone like FTX has just gone down? Well, I think I think CZ is really worried that you know that this fallout uh, is not even a crypto winter thing story. It's a uh, um, it's the knock on effect. Um, you know, the chain reaction of uh, of one crypto affecting everything else. Uh, it's also a story of two. Uh, you know, crypto giants uh, screwing each other, if you pardon the expression. Um, you know, it was CZ that bought uh, the most number of uh, FTTs, um, the, the tokens that FTX had created, um, you know, and he had, he had held on to about 70% of the, uh, of the tokens. Uh, and so he was holding on to it. 
And then when he realized that um, that the valuation on the tokens could not be sustained by the assets that uh, the FTX had, um, he, 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 he did what was the right thing, which is to offload as quickly as possible while the value was still there. And as he did that, the, the, the valuation just dropped and, uh, and then affected Alameda uh, and, and then had a knock-on effect back to FTX. Um, you know, so, and it was, um, it looked like he was screwing, um, you know, um, uh, B, uh, you know, uh, Sam, ba- Sam Bankman Fried, uh, SBF, um, you know, but, um, but he had, he had actually took all, took, took on the FTT tokens uh, as a matter of trust, uh, because, you know, to support uh, SBF to, to, uh, to build his business and so on. And, and then there were other stories such as, um, SBF had gone out to uh, the Congress and you know started uh, promoting uh, the idea of uh, regulating exchanges, uh, just like uh, traditional exchanges and so on, uh, which the rest of the industry um, you know did not like uh, and would have uh, made it uh, very difficult for the rest of the industry to keep growing. Uh, you know, so so I think that there was a loss of trust between these two um uh, friends or frenemies uh, you know they they were competitors at the same time uh, they were holding each other's assets on their books uh, and yes it will affect binance going forward um you know and um, and and binance's token own token and it's affecting everybody else as well um but then at some point the route will stop uh and and then we'll see what's left on the table uh you know and what's left on the table has enough technology in it to um, you know, to grow again and to build in the disciplines, uh, not to have algorithms that don't work uh, and to be more transparent uh, to customers uh, and customers themselves or users themselves will be far more critical about the exchanges that they operate on. In fact, there's now a move towards um, uh, users uh, managing their own assets, uh, digital assets, uh, taking it off the exchanges uh, taking it off uh, open wallets and, and and creating your own wallets and so on. So that in itself uh, has a disciplining effect on the industry, and uh, I think it'll be. I think it'll it will evolve. The question now is whether the institutional players uh, will be regulated by you know, but will be properly regulated, and then create a, a different universe than what was intended or what where it was going which is that it's not a free-for-all. Um, you need to first get a license before you even issue a token. If that happens, then uh, then we'll see a very different universe than the personalization of finance. Uh, and I don't, I don't see that universe coming about. Yeah. So, so how does Binance actually operate with the, you know, the Chinese government? Or how does it work with that? You're based in China, so you could give a bit of an insight to this because everyone wants to know. Well, firstly, I'm, I was surprised that uh, many of the exchange operators around the world and token holders are Chinese today. And they've been internationalized uh, precisely because the Chinese government shut down on, uh, on crypto in China. Uh, in fact, a lot of the blockchain projects in China are finding it difficult to, you know, to, to build a full working model because they're not allowed to issue cryptos. Um, you know, and I think that China is doing itself a disservice by banning cryptos in that way. Uh, but outside of China, uh, many of the actors are Chinese. Uh, from the ones that I've met, I've not yet met CZ, but I've met people who do business with him. Uh, and uh, firstly, I think he's Canadian now. I'm, I'm, I think he's changed his passport. Uh, so he's not uh, Chinese national in that way. Uh, and uh, 
um, you know, and I think they they now stand as a counter balance against what China is doing as a country. So I think we need to see that as um, as the operating principle for for now. Will they go back and support um, you know some uh, nefarious uh, you know initiative for Chinese government? I don't think so. Uh, and uh, I think we should we should treat Binance as an international play uh, because even China would not want to have anything to do with with the universe that Binance has created. It's a very robust universe. Um, you know, and and it's a uh, issue of tokens by uh, itself. Um, you know, and um, and it's got a network effect outside of China that China doesn't want to see come back into China, right now. Now, would they want? Would they make deals for data to be you know to be processed in China? Um, there might be deals like that, but uh, if there were. I think that Binance will collapse if uh, if the international market discovers that there's any collusion with the Chinese government. And then, you know, we were talking the other week about Hong Kong and then, you know, they've just published like three quarters of negative growth in Hong Kong. So, you know, unlike America, when they publish negative growth in Hong Kong, it is a recession. It's just not a recession over here, according to the White House. How will Hong Kong play with that in terms of because they, you know, now they're wanting to maybe, you know, be more open. I know there's some security token exchanges out there as well, ATSs for alternative trading now starting to operate there. How will Hong Kong get to operate going forward, do you think? Uh, I think for now, there is a lot more, um, you know, initiatives in Hong Kong to make it uh, uh, fall in line with the overall Chinese government's. Uh, direction in crypto and uh, in in alternative uh, platforms. Uh, so I think Hong Kong will not be as robust as Singapore is right now. Uh, and I know the regulators in Singapore, I, I know some of the key uh, influences in the whole ecosystem. Uh, they are amazing. They want to regulate um, cryptos, uh, but at the same time, they see the value um, of um, you know stablecoin uh, applications that can be developed around the token and all that, um, Hong Kong sees that too. Uh, but its hands will be a little tight uh, because the Hong Kong Hong Kong Monetary Authority uh, will need to fall in line with the you know the Chinese government uh, uh, you know PBOC and the CBIRC uh, in China. Uh, and so I think that you won't see Hong Kong allowing too many experiments. Uh, or initiatives, or even exchanges being built, uh, which makes it look like you know, like China has lost out, or something's happening in Hong Kong that that, that China should be doing too. In fact, China is having a hard time, um, you know, curbing uh, the exchange ex activities of its own people. That uh, it just would not allow something like that to happen in Hong Kong. So I think that Singapore is more of a uh, of the region, of the country, or, or the uh, of the jurisdiction that will will be more liberal than Hong Kong will be uh, in that part of the world uh, and everybody else. So you know, I, I maybe Korea and Japan. Uh, these are the other two that are far more um, progressive than China is at the moment. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So, so we'll we'll just bring it up because that's just coming getting over forty five minutes just now, Emmanuel. And I appreciate your busy guy. But uh, what we'll do is we'll bring in your book just now, just to give a bit the great transition. If you want to finish off and give a little bit more about uh, where people can actually purchase this, and we'll, we'll definitely provide a link below. And then you know, what's the future for yourself? Right. So it's available on. Uh, all the details are available on my blog page. So that's emmanueldaniel.com. If you go in there, you'll see it right away. 
uh, and and you'll see the table of contents. Uh, interesting thing about my book is I start the first two chapters by um, working out the first principles of the future of finance. Um, you know, what do we mean by token? How do we capture value? Um, you know, questions like that. Uh, how will the network world look like going into uh, going into the future? Then, in the in the middle of the book, I sort of uh, go back into the you know, into the, the first principles of banking. Um, and there I'm struggling with what banks uh, think of themselves and what actually worked in banking uh, originally that is now transitioning into, uh, into the digital space. So, for example, one of the things I say very clearly is that the essence of banking is the balance sheet, not the technology. You know, and we're seeing that right now, okay, that that when the tide goes down, you see who's naked, which is um, when when the uh, when all the easy money goes down, you, you see what actually works in banking and in banking, uh, the risk that you take on at what price uh, is what you will end up, uh, you know, paying for. And, as, and if you can't afford it, your business will go bust. Um, and then I take a I make I challenge the banking industry to say, you know something, you really need to think about your products in banking today. The deposit account is no longer a tenable product in the same way that the 35 mm film was no longer a tenable product when the digital camera came about. And yet, Kodak, you know, went into bankruptcy 15 years after originating digital films. Okay, that kind of thinking. And then I end the book by look looking at or mapping out how the transition will evolve. Uh, and I really hope that people enjoy uh, reading this book, uh, not for cliches and current things that are happening, but underlining principles that you can apply as you see the transitions taking place. So that is why, um, as I see the crypto winter and the fallout with, uh, uh, with uh, FTX and, and Luna and so on, I still see the trend evolving. Uh, because I go back to first principles and I see what people do on the ground, which is uh, the API developers are still working on it. Capital is still being formed on tokens, um, you know, and the network effect is coming into place uh, through things like gaming, NFTs and so on. Uh, NFTs may uh, evolve to become more mature uh, in that it will not just be about uh, pecuniary things that we collect, um, but more valuable stuff. The whole idea of what value is, uh, is being translated into the network world. Um, and, and so for the thinking person, uh, this book sort of goes and gives, goes back into giving you the, the roadmap by which you can, you can figure out your own future. In fact, after, after writing this book, I'm learning and I'm, I'm coming up with ideas that, uh, that are more current as, as we go along. Yeah, my dad was a traditional banker 30 years with the manager of Bank of Scotland which was one of the first banks back in the UK, back in the 1600s, believe it or not. So so maybe I should just get this for his Christmas present this year. You know, he, he doesn't listen to my podcast anyway. So that could be a good one because he's always interested to know what's going there. He's and coming it, from traditional banking, you know. It, even there, there's something very interesting. You know, the original bankers of the world were the Scotsmen, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because there was this trusted element. Uh, that was within the community, and uh, you know, and HSBC, uh, you know, was was essentially uh, a Scotsman-built institution uh, and a global institution on that. So, the Royal Bank of Scotland still there, you know, the name's still going. 
So, so in, in, in the last chapter of my book, when I say we transition from tribal to institutional to markets to, to networks, uh, you know, banking was tribal. That if you were a Scotsman working in, you know, in, uh, in, in close uh, connect with other Scotsmen, you can actually build a, a global business, you know, and you can institutionalize it, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, so you, you can actually, um, you know, tell stories around, and your father will, will probably agree with me that there was a time when, you know, the trust and the integrity and the hard work of the Scotsman uh, build some of the best banks we know today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then the 2008 banking boom came along and then <laughs> they let the salesmen start selling debt to each other. And it was, uh, that, yeah, finished on, on that note as well, just because we were speaking about that. When that banking crisis happened, do you think that banking crisis will ever happen again? Oh, I'm saying it will again and again and again. <laughs> and why? So I, I take the reader in my book uh, through a journey and say that, you know, when you look at uh, the banking crisis of 1984, um, it was based on actual mortgages. OK, it was the savings and loans crisis. The mom and pop banks could not match their assets and liabilities uh, uh, where the underlying asset was an actual mortgage, a, a house owned by their customers. Uh, and then by the time you reach the 1990, any crisis after that, okay, um, 1997, Asian crisis, it was more uh, economies and so on. And then, um, you know, when you look at Enron and then you look at uh, the 19, 2008 crisis, um, the world was moving uh, towards the underlying assets becoming increasingly ephemeral. In other words, they were not no longer the underlying assets. It was a derivative on the asset and then a derivative a security on the asset and then a derivative on the security and then a, a derivative on the derivative, right? Um, so I'm saying that, uh, I'm saying this in my book that um, we are moving into the financialization of everything. Uh, you know, not just mortgages, but any asset uh, that is tangible today is being financialized. Uh, and so the... The next financial crisis will be a highly financialized crisis, far more than the 2008 crisis. No, oh. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense the way you've explained it, though. You know, for a lot of people, especially coming from that banking world, it's just they just can't understand it because it was all to do with, uh, as you say, traditional banking, safe lending. This is the business plan. What I'm coming in for? Why I'm loan money? Where's the assets against it? And now, as you say, it's just moved up so many different levels that, you know, that type of banking of, and it's the technology, as you say, Emmanuel, it's just, you know, until we were all interconnected, that was it. You had to go in, knock on the door, set up your appointment. Here's my business plan. Read the plan. I'll, I'll lend against that. You know, are you a high risk bank manager or a low risk bank manager? And, and that was the way. And then suddenly the, the internet basically started this. And I just feel like the blockchain's just the, you know, it's, it's the next iteration of the internet when it's the finance of the internet, basically. And everything you speak about, uh, you know, covering that. Yeah. And in my book, I have a special section on the LIBOR crisis, right? Um, where um, it was a crisis that the media um, predicated as a crisis of morality, that is bankers doing what they shouldn't be doing. Uh, but actually, I called it a crisis in transition, which is, uh, you had the rate setters who existed in the 
uh, in the market space, sorry, in the in the in the institutional phase of the of the industry, and you had the traders who were in the market space, and the traders looking for any index that they could trade on, and and pouring over the rate setters to say, hey, can you, uh, you know, tweak your rates in order to uh, you know help us with the markets. Uh, it was two sets of players doing the best in their respective fields, um, you know, and so as we make other transitions, like from markets to networks, we will find other forms of. Um, of uh, anomalies or uh, bad behavior that is not morally bad. It's just that um, one uh, player did not understand, uh, you know, the, the 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 operations of the you know the another player. So someone in the network world looking at someone in the markets world will have certain requirements from the securities being traded, uh, which the markets world just doesn't do, uh, you know, today. So, so every transition, uh, and and you know, the, the person I referred to, uh, who wrote this paper, where uh, society moves from tribal to uh, institutional to markets to networks, he said that uh, that the crime in the in the network world is deception. Um, you know, where every one of the players have exactly the same op uh, information that they that they have of each other. In other words, there's no asymmetry of information, but then the crime is the intention behind the use of the information. So go figure out, uh, you know, what. <laughs> That's a perfect way to finish the show today, Emmanuel. You know, we could sit and talk about this stuff all day long, you know, so it's uh, just super interesting. So, well, thanks very much for coming on to the show. Uh, we'll, um, we've got the websites, emmanueldaniel.com. We'll have all the information on where you can acquire his book in the show notes before, uh, below. Um, appreciate you're a really busy guy. It'll be great to get you on the show in the future again, Emmanuel. So, um, but yeah, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Much for the privilege. Okay. Thanks to everyone out there. You've been watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. Have a nice day.